morning. Good. Open your Bibles to John 13. We are in a series in the Gospel of John entitled "He Is," and every single week we are answering the question, "Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? What does John tell us about him? What does?" want us to know through each passage, week by week by week, we've been answering that question for several months now, and last week we began a section in the Gospel of John known as the Upper Room Discourse. Those of you here remember Ryan explaining that to us. The Upper Room Discourse is chapters 13 through 16, and and many include chapter 17 as really the conclusion, Jesus' prayer for the disciples of the Upper Room Discourse. It's the night before Jesus dies on the cross, and he's with his disciples in the upper room. This is the time that they took the Lord's Supper together. These are my favorite chapters in the Bible. John 13 through 17 are my favorite chapters in the Bible because what's happening in these chapters is is Jesus knows he is about to go to the cross and then after the cross he's going to go to the Father. You look at John 13, 1, that's what he says. He says he knows he's about to depart from this world and go be with the Father. And it's his final night before the cross with his disciples. And what he does for chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, is he looks at them. He sets his heart on them. He wants to prepare them for what's about to happen. He wants to teach them. He wants to minister to them. He wants to comfort them. He wants to get them ready. And so he sets his heart on them. And then then chapter 17, he prays for them. And at the end of chapter 17, he prays for us. He says, I pray for all who will believe through them. He prays for all disciples. And and what we can know when we open John 13 through 17 is that this is is Jesus speaking in a very direct way to us right now. Not that he's not speaking through all of Scripture. Not, Not that the whole Bible is not his words to us, but we know from the context, from what's about to happen, this is Jesus on the night before the cross, looking at his disciples, looking as it were to you and to me. He wants to comfort you. He wants to minister to you. He wants to say something to you. He wants to encourage you. It's a sacred, intimate space in the upper room. And I want to invite you this morning to enter into the upper room. I want to invite you to come into the upper room and to listen to Jesus, your Lord, the night before the cross, speak to you. Teach you. Comfort you. Encourage you. Let's open our hearts this morning to what he has to say to us. This week's text is really part two of what Pastor Ryan preached last Sunday. He preached John 13, 1 through 11, and the title of his message was, Jesus is the Ultimate Servant. He's the Ultimate Servant. What happened last week in last week's text is that Jesus, in the upper room, he, he knows what's about to happen. He looks at his disciples, and he rises from supper, and he gets down on his knees. He puts on servants' clothes, and he washes his disciples' feet. He washes their feet. He, he performs a work that was reserved for the lowest of the low. This is how he begins the night with his disciples. And and by washing their feet, he foreshadows the greater work that's about to happen just hours away, his death on the cross. And so that's what we saw last week was Jesus taking on this servant role. And and this is really just part two of that. Now Jesus is coming out of the foot wash and he's going to 
He's going to teach more on what he just did. We already saw some last week on, on what the foot washing represented, that, that Jesus' blood cleanses us, it justifies us forevermore, and, and, and it continues to sanctify us through this life, and it will finally glorify us. Now today we're going to look at 12 through 17, and we're going to see more of what he did when he washed their feet. And so it's really part two, and because of that, I want to read verses 1 through 17 together. Just slow down for a minute and read 1 through 17. Uh, Re-enter the scene of him washing the disciples' feet. And then at verse 12, we'll pick up where we're going to be today in our sermon. So let's read John 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. If I then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So the title of this week's sermon is, He is Our Exalted Example. Part one, last week, He is Our Ultimate Servant. Part two, this week, is He is Our Exalted Example. And the big idea that we're going to think about, that we're going to spend our time in today is this. Go as low for one another as your king went for you. That's the big idea. Go as low for one another as your king went for you. We're just going to walk through this text together to understand that idea, to understand what it means that he is our exalted example, and to seek to hear and respond to his word and faith. I I, I so enjoyed the time of singing this morning so far. I so enjoyed remembering the gospel together, thinking about the implications for our lives, remembering that he is worthy. And this morning as we dig into the word of God, let's listen 
to the one who died for us, the one who gives us hope in this life, the one who is worthy of all our praise. Let's press in in our hearts to hear our Savior speak to us. So there's, there's really three parts to Jesus' teaching. There, there's, and we're just going to spend most of our time on the second part. So this will not be a balanced one, two, three sermon. There's, there's, three, there's three parts, all right? First, he starts with a question. Second, he gives an instruction. And finally, he gives an exhortation. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the question he asks, the instruction he gives, and the exhortation that he gives at the end. And so let's look again at verse 12 and look at the question that Jesus asks. When he had washed their feet, And put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? So I'm going to ask you a question, and this isn't the question he asks, all right? After Jesus washed the disciples' feet, what was the very next thing he did? He put on his outer garments and he resumed his place. He put his outer garments back on and he resumed his place. You see, he had laid aside his outer garments, but after he washed their feet, he put them back on. He, he had risen from supper and he had stooped low, but after he washed their feet, he sat back down at the center of the table. He had taken the form of a servant and performed the act of a servant, but after he had washed their feet, he resumed his place as their master. Now, now this verse completes the picture of this passage. L- last week we saw that Jesus washing the disciples' feet was a picture of of his servant work. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he laid aside his glory. As it were, he laid aside his outer garments. He laid aside his glory and he took on flesh. He took on humanity. He became a man and he became a servant. He lived a life of a servant and then he humbled himself and he died on the cross for you and me. As he stooped low in servant's clothes, washing the disciples' feet, it's a picture of him stooping low from heaven, from glory, down to earth, in humanity, dying on a cross to wash our sins away. His blood cleansing us from our sin. He bore them on himself. He endured the Father's wrath, and he cleansed us by his blood. And and as that water poured over the disciples' feet, and as he pressed his hands into their feet to wash the grime away. That's a picture of what he did on the cross, cleansing us from every sin. Cleansing us from every sin in every single nook and cranny of our hearts. But after he finished his servant work through his death, through his blood, after he died, he rose again. He rose again and he resumed his place. As this text says, he put on his outer garments. He he was clothed in a glorious body. He resumed his place. He was exalted to the Father's right hand. Jesus now is not on a cross. Jesus is in heaven, ascended, exalted, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The one who served us has now been exalted. He is the ultimate servant, and now he is the exalted king. And as the ultimate servant, who is now the exalted king, I want you to picture in your mind that he is our exalted king, scars on his hands, but reigning at the Father's right hand. And now he asks us a question. Do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have done to you? On one level, it's a rhetorical question because look back at verse 7. He, he had just said to Peter, what, what I'm doing right now, you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. 
And when he says afterward, you will understand, what he means is not after the foot washing. What he means is after the cross. He means after, after I actually do what this work symbolizes, then you'll understand what this symbol meant. But now he asks, do you understand? That's a rhetorical question. He, he knows the disciples can't fully understand what he's doing right now. He's about to begin to explain it to them. But, but it makes you wonder, why does he ask the question? He just said, you won't understand, you can't understand, but now he says, do you understand? Why is he asking this question? I think it's because he wants to underscore a reality. Before he gets into his call to follow his example, he wants to underscore that call with something, and it's this. Unless you understand what Jesus has done to you, you cannot follow his example. Unless you understand what, what he's done to you, you can't follow his example. And so before he goes ahead and calls them to follow his example, he, he says, do you understand what I've done to you? And, and this verse here in the Gospel of John is, is here for us. It's here for all disciples who live after the cross to look back at the cross and to say, what has he done for me? Jesus is calling us into reflection on what he's done. And, and he's calling his disciples to understand that it's only by grasping the work of Christ for you that you'll be compelled to work for one another. It's only by grasping what he's done for you, what he's done to you, that you'll be able to then follow his example and to do work for each other the way he calls you to do it. This is such an important principle. You know, um, how many of you ever wore a wristband that, that said WWJD on it? Right? A few of you? Okay. Anyone want to say what that acronym means for us? What would Jesus, what would Jesus do? Right, very popular back in the, I guess the 90s. Um, it's probably when it was most popular. I was born in the 90s, by the way. <laughs> I know, I know, it scares you guys. So the point of that was obviously you're in a situation and you're not sure what to do, and you just say, "What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this situation?" And and over time, it it began to just take on the um, stigma of just uh, a Christian slogan that, that people didn't really want to wear. And, 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 you know, if you really think about it, like what, what would happen if you were facing a, a storm at sea and, and you're going to be overtaken by, by these waves and you were going to die and, and you look at your wristband at that moment? You say, What would Jesus do? He'd calm the storm, right? He'd just say, Stop it. Stop it, waves. And, and they would stop. So, look, that doesn't work very well for me, right? Okay, what, what would happen if, if, if you take 5,000 people out to lunch one day, and, and, and he goes, they all forgot their lunch, right? No one brought any food except one little boy. What, what, what would Jesus do? Man, wristband, what would Jesus do? And you're like, well, he would feed them all with one little lunch pack, but I can't do that right now. And so that began to not be very effective. You realize what Jesus did and what I do don't really correlate here. Jesus was, Jesus was the power of God. He was able to do whatever he wanted to do in every situation, and that's not me. And, and, and so... I think people began to realize over time, and, and what really happened underneath that more silly level is that, is that people realized it's, it's not about what would Jesus do, it's about what did Jesus do. It's, it's, it's about what he has done for us. It's, it's about the life he lived. It's the sinless life that we sang about earlier, never trace nor stain of sin. The, the substitutionary death where, where the sinless died for sinners so that we could be cleansed. The, the, the resurrection, which guarantees our hope, which we sang about earlier. All, all these years, this is what Jesus did do. And what we need to do is remember that. We need to remember that this is what he did for us. And, and as we do that, 
as we remember what he did, then what does it do? It compels us to do what Jesus did. Compels us then to love as he loved. Compels us to serve as he served. And so we shouldn't jump away necessarily from the question, what would Jesus do? We should understand that the fundamental question is what did Jesus do? And so I want to make an application here for us, and that is that, that church, we need to deepen, always deepen your understanding of what he did for you. Don't ever stop going deeper into understanding what he did for you. Don't be content. Like, like right now, think, think about, you probably can't, but just try. Think about everything you know that Jesus did for you. He's, he's justified you. He has reconciled you. He's redeemed you. He's propitiated the Father's wrath. Through him you have adoption, reunited with Christ. You have resurrection. Think about all these things that Jesus did for you. Now say, I need to go deeper. I need to go deeper. I need to, I need to understand these realities more. I, I need to know more. I need to press in more. Because the more I press into what he's done to me, what he's done for me, the more I will be able to follow him and live for him. And, and so deepen your mind's understanding of the cross. And, and by saying your mind's understanding, what I mean is just deepen your cognitive understanding of the cross. Good thinking is prerequisite to good feeling and, 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 and right worship for the cross. You, you need to think rightly about the cross first. And so deepen your understanding, and, and, and you do that by reading about the cross. Ultimately, from the Word, you get, you get in the Word, you get in the Gospels like we're doing this morning, and you understand the cross more. But, but read books on the cross. You should probably always be reading a book on the cross. Maybe Not saying don't read other books too, but, but just slowly, meditatively, always be finding good books that unfold the work of Christ for you. And think about it, read about it, press in your understanding. Hear about the cross. Listen to sermons that extol the cross of Christ to you. Listen to songs that extol the cross of Christ. Think about the cross. Just spend time in quietness, taking a walk, thinking about the cross. Deepen your understanding of it. But, but then I also want to say deepen your heart's grasp of it. Don't just deepen your mind's understanding. Deepen your heart's grasp. And, and what I mean by that is that we can think right thoughts about the cross and not feel anything. Can't we? It's not a cognitive issue. It's, it's not that you just don't know. It's that you know it so well that your heart has begun to be numb to it. It's the problem of familiarity. We need to fight familiarity with the cross, with everything we have. We need to fight it. How do you do that? One, you pray. You just pray for God's help. You, you, we talked about this last week at the end of the service, but in Ephesians 3, Paul prays for the church, and he says, I pray that God may grant that your spirit would be strengthened to comprehend the love of Christ. Okay, so, so comprehension of the love of Christ is not just a cognitive thing. It is something that the Spirit does in our spirits. He, he works in us in a mysterious way to make us soft to the love of Christ. And Paul knows, as he writes to the Ephesian church, that I can say and I can write as much as I can about the cross to these Christians. But no matter how much I write, and no matter how much they know, unless God's Spirit works in their spirits, to comprehend the breadth and length and heights and depths of the love of Christ, they will not know the fullness of his love. They will not grasp it. 
And, and that's an example for us that we need to pray for God's help if you are not grasping the cross. You understand it, but you're not grasping it in your heart. Pray for God's help. Fast. Ask others to pray for you. Do anything you can to say, say I, can't, I can't live my life here. I can't be in this stagnant state where I don't feel worship and all because of the cross. And so please help me, God. Please, brothers and sisters, pray for me. Pray that I can grasp the cross. Two, confess your sins. Confess your sins. How, how do you go from cognitive understanding of the cross to personal grasping of the cross? You do it by confession. Because the cross needs to move from being this abstract reality to a personal need. That you realize, I have sinned today. I deserve wrath today. I deserve condemnation. And God, I confess the specific sins in my life that Jesus died for. I confess them to you. And you begin to experience, through that confession, the personal nature of what Christ has done for you. Paul can say in Ephesians, he says it again, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We rejoice in that, but then in Galatians he says, he loved me and he gave himself for me. You know that by knowing that you have sinned, that he has died for. And then finally, sing of the cross. Yes, I lead music at Redeemer Church, but no, I'm not saying this because of that. Sing about the cross. Even if you don't like to sing, Tyler, I'm going to put you on the spot because you have told me you do not have a good voice. I've never heard you sing, so I can't confirm or deny that. But you love to sing about the cross, and that encouraged me. And you love to do it because when you do it, God works through that song to fill your heart with joy. And, and I just put him on the spot in that as an example to show that God has designed music to stir our affections. That's what it's for. He's made it that way. It was his idea to stir our affections up. And so sing of the cross when you're alone, when you're with the church, when you're in your car, sing of the cross. Find songs that you can listen to and sing to deep in your heart's grasp. And so never stop pursuing a deeper understanding of what Christ has done to you. That first point was longer than I thought it was going to be, but I hope it was worth it. Let's press into grasping the cross, seeing our exalted Savior asking us, do you understand? So he asked this question, and then, and then he moves on to give an instruction. He moves on to give an instruction, and, and let's read verses 13 through 16 again. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. There are really just two things we need to observe in these four verses. The, the, the message in these four verses is very straightforward. There, there's two things we need to observe. First, what is the relationship between Jesus and us in these verses? What is the relationship between him and us? Here's what he says. He's the master. We are servants. He's the teacher. We are his students. He is the sender. We are his messengers. He is the Lord. We are his disciples. We live in a relationship with Christ where he is our authority and we are under his authority. He is the one we submit our lives to. And, and Jesus appeals to that several times in this text. 
I'm your teacher and Lord, and you're right about that. You, uh, a servant's not greater than his master. A messenger's not greater than the one who sent him. He, he's appealing to them on the basis of his authority. He's saying, I am your authority. You submit to me. I am your king. As our exalted Lord, Jesus is our king. We live our lives under his authority. Having established that relationship, what is the instruction? Wash one another's feet. Follow my example. Do just as I have done to you. I want you to see something here, that that Jesus does not come to the disciples as the authority, wash each other's feet. Do it now. Right? What does he do? He comes as the authority and he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. Then he gets back up and he says, as I've washed your feet, wash one another's feet. If I'm your your king and I did this, then you also ought to do it too. He combines the inherent power of his authority with the motivating power of his example to appeal to you and to me, go as low for one another as I went for you. He is our authority. We should obey. But he didn't just come to us and say, do this. He came and he did it first in grace, in love, in condescension. And then he says, do as I've done for you. Go as low for one another as I went for you. And so, church, the call today, very simple. Let's do to each other what Jesus did for us. Look around the room. Let's do for one another as Jesus did for us. I've got a few questions for us through application, and these will help us to understand what this really means. Hopefully, practically, what does this look like? Question number one, who should you serve? Who should you serve? According to the text, one another. Right? Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, do this for one another. Look to each other, you 12 disciples, Judas has not left the room yet, and he says, do this for one another. Which, which, which means that we do this for Christians, we do this for believers, we do this for disciples, we do this for the church. We should wash each other's feet. We should serve each other. We should go low for each other. Now, if every Christian in the world applies to this, then th- that kind of leaves us overwhelmed, right? Am I supposed to look at every believer and, and, and wash their feet? And so what I want to say now is that church membership practically defines one another for us. Those that you are members of the same local church with, that, that is the practical answer to who? It's, it's those who you've covenanted to be in membership with. When you joined the church, you stood up here in front of the body, and you made a covenant to the body. He said, I'm going to commit to worship with you. I'm going to commit to fellowship with you, to discipleship with you, to mission with you. And we're going to commit our lives to each other. And now you are one flock here at Redeemer Church. We are one flock. And so church membership is the practical answer to who should you serve. You should serve each other, Redeemer Church. And what I want to call you to is to go wide and go deep. Okay, go wide and go deep. Here's what I mean by that. We're not big church, but we're big enough that I know personally that some of you don't know each other's names. That when we have times of fellowship, we just gravitate towards the same people with our common interests, and we, and we stick there, and, and we, we just 
get in pockets with each other, and we don't go wide. We, we, we stay narrowly focused on those that we're most comfortable with, those that are most like us, and, and that is not how church should be. We need to go wide to one another. Go to the one who is least like you. Go to the one who is least comfortable and, and wash their feet. And then go deep. Go deep. Which by that I mean don't, don't just have superficial relationships built on superficial things that look just like the world. But go deep with each other. Get real with each other. Have spiritual conversation with each other. Encourage each other. Go deep with each other in those relationships. Now, we can't go all completely wide and completely deep, all of us. So I'm not saying that. That's not possible, right? But I want to encourage you. Ask yourself, how can I go wider today than I, than I am right now? And how can I go deeper with someone today than I've gone before? Who should you serve? One another. What should you do? Wash each other's feet, right? It's, it's a clear instruction. But at the same time, what, what does it mean to actually wash each other's feet? What, is, what did Jesus expect his disciples to do? Did he expect them to literally wash each other's feet? And, and how often do you expect them to do it if that's the case? Is he calling us to, to be foot washers here at Redeemer Church? Well, we need to think about why he did what he did. What was Jesus doing by washing their feet? We've talked about already that the work of foot washing was a picture of his work on the cross. It, it was a symbolic act of servanthood that pointed to his ultimate act of servanthood. The symbolic act, washing their feet, pointed to his ultimate act of cleansing from sin. And so when he instructs the disciples, when he instructs us, wash each other's feet, I think he means two things by this. First, I think he means do physical acts of service for one another that point to his ultimate act of service. Just as the foot washing was a symbol of the cross, so we can do acts of service for each other that are symbols of the cross. We, we can serve each other in tangible, physical ways that point each other, that paint a picture for each other of how Jesus has served us. Does that make sense? Physical acts of service that symbolize his ultimate act of service. And, and just some ideas on this, some things that we can do. Uh, maybe the most tangible way is our mercy offering. We do a mercy offer. We have a mercy fund. We we can put that in the box or, or through online giving. But we have a mercy offering that we use to help each other's physical situations. And the, when, when we can put above and beyond giving into that mercy fund, then what we are doing is we are serving each other, so that we can tangibly say, well, our life is not about us. It's about Him, and and we want this to picture what He's done for us. And, and so think, think intentionally about the mercy offering and, and give joyfully to the mercy offering. Uh, opportunities to serve when we're gathered together, there, there are, you guys know them, there are so many ways to serve when we're gathered together. Take those opportunities. But, but then maybe one more is to use, use your gifts and your skills and your time for each other's good outside of these walls. Your gifts and your skills and your time for each other's good. Ryan Howard helped me change a tire last, last year. You guys have heard that story, I think. Right? It's using a skill that I don't have, time that he didn't need to give to help me change my tire. A symbolic act of servanthood that points me not to Ryan Howard, but beyond him to his Savior and what he's done for me. 
So use your gifts and skills for each other's good. But, but, but then don't stop there. Okay? Don't, don't stop in these physical acts of service. Serve each other spiritually. Serve each other's sanctification. Serve each other's joy in Christ. Go low for one another through spiritual service. Some ways to do this are to pray with each other and for each other. Get the directory out, walk through it, and just pray for each other. When you're with each other and you're asking how each other's weeks are going, give real answers, and if it's not going well, pray for each other right then and there. Spiritually serve each other in that way. Encourage each other and admonish each other from the Word of God. Whether it's meeting once a week to open your Bible together and to reflect together, or whether it's just having conversations at the fellowship meal, or whether it's in a build class, use the word to encourage and admonish each other. But this, this is really what I meant by go deeper, all right? Go deeper spiritually. Minister to each other and to, to our, our fight against sin to our fight for joy in Christ. Be, be each other's servants in that. Say, say to yourself, when I walk into the church and when I think about my church family, they need me to help them have joy in Christ. That's what he's saying here. We need each other to help one another have joy in Christ. And so give yourself to that. One key application I want to make is hospitality. Okay? Hospitality. This is a combining of the two. And it might sound boring, but I want to say right now that nothing can, I think, better bring all this together than hospitality having each other in your homes, cooking a meal for each other, sitting down at the table, praying together, enjoying fellowship, having a spiritual conversation, maybe praying more together, living life together. Something can happen in your homes that cannot happen anywhere else. We should have each other in our homes. Take the initiative, invite each other over, make it a night of refreshment and service and love. If you do that, we will wash each other's feet. Maybe do it once a month. Make the sacrifice in your budget to pay for it so you can provide good food for each other. But use that time to bring each other in your homes and go deep with each other, go wide with each other, and love each other, pray with each other. So how should you do it? We've said, who should you serve one another? What should you do? Wash each other's feet. How should you do it? Jesus says, just as he served us. Just as he served us. How did he serve us? Humbly, excellently, joyfully. He served us humbly, excellently, and joyfully. Imagine Jesus not serving this way. Okay, get to the scene of him washing the disciples' feet and, and imagine him going from disciple to disciple. Man, I am awesome. Yeah, I'm washing your feet. I'm awesome. I'm, I'm rubbing your toes. I, I, it's not humble, right? He didn't do that. He, he, he was not pointing attention to himself when he was washing their feet. He, he, was, he was just washing. He was just doing it. Excellently. Okay, I mean, imagine Thomas. He he's comes and washes Thomas's feet, and then he moves on to uh, Matthew, and Thomas looks down, and, and he's like, man, he missed a spot. <laughs> you know, man, he, there's, there's still dirt between my toes. <laughs> I didn't do a very good job. Did Jesus not do a good job? You guys think Jesus missed any spots when he washed their feet? No, he, he got every bit of grime, right? And joyfully, he didn't, he didn't go through complaining, man, you guys should have done this, uh, I can't believe you got it. He didn't, he didn't complain. He didn't complain when he served them. It was joyful service. He loved to do it. They knew he loved to do it. It was humble, it was excellent, it was joyful. 
And this might be the most important thing practically for us to take away today. Let your service of each other be humble and excellent and joyful because of what Christ has done for us. Get in between each other's toes with gladness. (laughs) All right? Get the grime. Do it humbly. Serve each other. And finally, what must you sacrifice? What must you sacrifice? Jesus said a servant is not greater than his master. And I want to ask you, if you look at your life, does your life look like you're living greater than Jesus lived? A servant's not greater than his master. He laid down his life for us. That's, that's the bar. That's how low he went. He laid down his life for us. And a servant is not greater than his master. We are not greater than Jesus. We must lay down our whole lives for one another. Service is not a nine-to-five job. Service is not a one-day-a-week job. The call to wash those feet is a call to lay down our lives for each other and to continue to find ways to lay down every aspect of our lives that, that are keeping us from washing each other's feet. And, and so what do you need to lay down today? What do you need to sacrifice? Maybe it's time. You just need more time. Listen, the reality is if you fill up your schedule with things, then you are not free to serve each other the way you need to be free. It's, it's good to have space in your schedule to keep that space, even, even if it's filled with good things, because you're going to miss opportunities that the Lord brings your way. And so you need to sacrifice your time. You need to sacrifice your money. What expenses do you have that you don't need to have, that you could give to a mercy offering, that you could give to a missionary, that you could give to a charity? What, what do you need to do with your finances that, that you could then love others and serve them with? Your possessions, what can you use for others? What hobbies do you have that, that keep you from spending your time with people that maybe don't do those things? What, what interests do you have that differ from others that you need to lay down and go be something else with someone else so that you can spend time with them and love them? What lifestyle commitments have you made that keep you from serving, from, from being a washer of each other's feet? What personal goals, what family goals do you have that, that keep you from each other? Sacrifice comfortability. What, what keeps you in conversation from going deep? Is it just the awkwardness of it? Just sacrifice it. Just say, it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's, a, it's okay for them to think this is weird. I'm, I'm going to sacrifice this. I'm going to sacrifice what they think of me so I can press in on them. But what do you need to lay down for each other? Meditate on that. Think about that. Finally, he, he's, given, he's given this instruction. He's... He has asked the question at the beginning. He's given this instruction. Now he, he ends with an exhortation. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He does not say, if you know these things, you're blessed. Right? There's no blessing for you today if you know these things. There's only blessing for you today if you know these things and you do them. 
there's a choice that each one of us needs to make this morning. Are we going to do this? Are we going to wash each other's feet? Are we going to turn our hearts and our lives towards each other and wash each other's feet? And if we do, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Truly happy are you. To to be blessed by God means that you find true joy in Him. And Jesus is appealing to your joy here. He's appealing to true happiness. He's saying, you think that living for yourself will make you happy. You think that living a self-centered life will bring you joy. You think that not serving each other is going to be the way to go. But I'm telling you, blessed are you if you do these things. Blessed are you if you pour out your life for each other. If you wash each other's feet. If you go as low for each other as I went for you. Here's what Jesus promises you. He says you will experience joy that nothing else can give you. If you believe in him then believe his word here, that this is the path of joy. Serving each other, washing each other's feet is the path of joy. It's the path of blessing. And so I want to call you today, one, understand what he has done for you. Grasp it. Meditate on it. Two, do likewise with each other. Wash each other's feet. Blessed are you if you do these things.